This is Ed Gunger. Welcome to our podcast. We're smack in the midst of discussing the Apostles' Creed, and it's important to remember that this creed was first used as a vow for water baptism, as a promise for Christ followers to make as they were starting their faith journey, or for guardians or parents to make as they were baptizing their young children. If you confess this creed with some level of agreement, you are a Christian that's rooted in what's called orthodoxy. That's a good thing. The creed begins with, we believe in God, or I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And that's where we left off. The next segment is the longest part of the creed. It's devoted to Jesus. It goes, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. This section of the creed begins with Jesus' relationship with the Father. It says we believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. So it starts with God's relationship or Jesus' relationship with God as God's only Son. And then it moves into Jesus' relationship to humanity. He is our Father. And we see how he's born of Mary. He becomes one of us, that he suffers under Pontius Pilate to, in order for, to be associated with all that it meant to suffer as a human being. And then the section ends with the belief that Jesus is coming back to forever be part of the human experience. But let's go back to that opening phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. The claim that Jesus Christ was God's son is packed with really some deep theological conviction that Jesus Christ was not just human. The Christian church claims that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God or the living word of God and the son of God, the second person of what's called the Holy Trinity. The claim is that Jesus came from the eternal dimension and that he took on human flesh, human form, in order to become the savior and the redeemer of the world. His name Jesus means God saves. It's taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. It's in Jesus that God has come to save us, because God saves, from the power of sin, from the power of death. His name Christ, it comes from the Greek word Christos, which means the anointed one. The Old Testament kings and priests and prophets, they used to be anointed with oil as they began to serve as the, the people of God. And it was trusted by anointing them that they would have an enablement of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ means that the, the one who saves, that God is saving through, is anointed by the Holy Spirit as Christos to perfectly fulfill those roles as prophet, priest, king, that he continues now as God's prophet, priest, and king over the church and over all creation is the claim of Christian theology. The creed then calls him our Lord. What does that mean? In the Jewish tradition, uh, which is where the first disciples emerged from, the designation Lord was only used for God. Jesus' early followers ended up applying it to Jesus. Thomas says it most decisively in John when he's speaking to the risen Christ. In John 20 and 28, Thomas said to Jesus, my Lord and my God. 
they were fond of using the title Kyrios for Jesus, which meant the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we say the creed and call Jesus our Lord, we are saying that worship and obedience to Jesus Christ is worship and obedience to God. As Lord and God, Jesus, we claim, exercises absolute authority over creation, the church, and our lives. There's a text in Philippians 2 that echoes this, starting in verse 9. It says, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus is Lord, I acknowledge his authority over the church and over all creation and over all society and rulers and over every aspect of my personal, social, professional, recreational family life. I mean, we seek as Christians to surrender to our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to, and to live every part of our lives in a way that would please him. Now, the early disciples knew at the start that Jesus was representing God as a prophet, but, but they were immediately suspicious something more was going on. The way he talked about the Torah, you know, which is God's command, seems so odd. I mean, repeatedly in texts like Matthew 5, Jesus is referencing the Old Testament commands from the Torah. And he says things like, well, you have heard it said to the people long ago. And then he would talk about the command. And then Jesus said, but I tell you. And then he would shift the command. I read one Jewish scholar critiquing those New Testament passages as a Jew in one of his writings. Listen to what he said. Quote, Jesus would actually reference one of the commands given to Moses by God and then proceeded to say, but I say to you and change it. Who does this Jesus think he is? God. End quote. Well, this kind of thing didn't get past the early disciples either. They began to say that on some level, Jesus Mastering the Torah was declaring himself as God. And of course, this would have been problematic. But then there were other miracles. Old Testament prophets did miracles. They thought he was a prophet. But Jesus did miracles that were of a different nature. In Luke 8, starting in 22, we read this narrative. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, Jesus fell asleep, and a squall came down the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples woke him, Master, Master, we're going to drown. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters, and the storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they said to one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obeyed him. In other words, Jesus mastered creation. Then check out this story. This is out of Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led him up to a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. I always think that's a funny statement. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And then the writer says, parenthetically, he did not know what he was saying because he was so frightened. And then it says, then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. But it wasn't until after, see, this fantastic kind of experience of seeing Jesus glowing and the word transfigured means that what's inside came outside. It began to stir them to begin to understand. It wasn't really until after the resurrection they began to put it together that this Jesus was not just from God, but that he was in some way God. Peter references the transfiguration moment we just read about in his writing in 2 Peter. And he says in verse chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. See, the gospel writers point to this divine intervention that kept happening when Jesus was around them and how Jesus somehow carried the smack of divinity as he was in the world. John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And then he says a little later, This Word became flesh. This Word that was God, that was with God, that was the Creator, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Luke writes in Luke 1, the angel of the Lord answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, talking to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. There's something going on here, something divine. Now, there is a sense in which all of us are sons and daughters of God. I mean, remember Romans, text like Romans 8, 14, those who are led by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, are sons of God. But there is a way, and the creed focuses on this point, there is a way that Jesus Christ was different from any other human that has lived in the past, or the present, or in the future. First, he came from God. In Galatians 4.4, 4, it says, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. In other words, Jesus was sent, not created. In Romans 8, 3, it says, For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in sinful man. Listen to Jesus on this point. This is John three sixteen. Most of you know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then Jesus, in a prayer that he prays directly to the Father, seals this idea. It says in John 17, starting in verse 1, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. 
Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, Jesus was pre-existent to Bethlehem. Jesus did not first appear as a human. He was always God, not a mere extension of God's essence. He was God. Philippians 2 says it, starting in verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant and be made in human likeness. He being found in the appearance of a man, humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here is Jesus Christ, God, who comes here, the Son of God, the second one of the Trinity, comes here, but he existed before he was here. This is why the Nicene Creed adds to what is said about Jesus in the Apostles' Creed. We say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son. Well, the Nicene Creed says, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. See, the church was saying, let's not entertain any confusion here. God was in the one we call Jesus from the beginning to end, and equally, the one we call Jesus was in God from eternity, and there was no time or moment when he was not God. This is Christianity. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to others. But this is our distinctive. Jesus Christ is God. God is triune, and Jesus is part of that trinity. Now, God transforms our humanity. Not because Jesus was a Jewish prophet who spoke in parables or welcomed strangers or favored the poor, forgave sinners, or criticized the social structures of the day. Those are all good things. Uh, But God can transform us because Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus became human so that God can begin to change the human race. Jesus' divinity was deemed critical for the salvation story because divinity becoming human made it possible for humans to share in divinity. This is at the heart of what we call salvation. In 2 Peter 1 and starting in verse 3, Peter claims God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. That through these, his glory and goodness, he has given us very great and precious promises so that through these promises, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See, it's not that we become God, it's that we can participate in God because Jesus, the Son of God, participated in humanity and opened the way for there to be a connection, an incarnational connection. So Christianity isn't really about morals and standards and policies. I mean, it has those things. 
It's about connecting with life that's beyond what we humans have on our own. Christianity is really about divine life. This is why huge parts of the Christian church don't really talk about the event of salvation. I mean, as evangelicals, charismatics, we often talk about, have you made a decision to receive Christ as your Savior? I mean, and, and that's a relevant question, but it's not the most relevant question for many through church history. The relevant question was always, are you walking in the life of God? Are you participating in the nature of God right now? Another beautiful point in this regard is not only did Jesus come from God, was God, comes from God, and returns back to God, he did not lose his place that he had before he left. Divinity becomes human to redeem humanity, to save it, to on some level deify it, bring God into it in some salvation way. We don't become again a part of the Trinity, but somehow the Trinity welcomes us into the life that is in God. Now, you can understand how this messed with those early Jewish Christ followers. I mean, Judaism was a monotheistic, is a monotheistic faith, one God. The great Jewish prayer, known as the Shema, was the Jewish morning creed out of Deuteronomy 6.4. says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, there are no gods, just God. And Paul reiterates this in Ephesians 4 and 5, uh, 5 and 6, uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. See, the early church wrestled here at first because they said, wait a minute. If the Father is God and Jesus is God, which is the direction the revelation seemed to be pointing, are, are we moving into a ditheism, you know, two gods? But the careful thinkers deemed that ditheism was unfaithful to the revelation they had. Others thought, well, maybe God was changing modalities. It's called monarchical modation. It means, so God is father in creation. Then maybe God became the son as he died on the cross. And maybe God became the Holy Spirit as he returns in power to the church. You know, one God, different modalities. And so they would wrestle through these things. They decided, no, that's not right. So they said, well, how can we talk about Jesus and be faithful to the scriptures and what we knew of the life and the person of Jesus? It was Tertullian who stepped up first in the middle of the second century and asserted that the truth of Revelation demanded making appropriate distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit while maintaining a fundamental sameness in God. In other words, Christians do not believe in three gods. We do not believe in we believe we believe in one God who appears in three different ways, not the modalities. Sometimes Father, sometimes Son, sometimes Spirit. But we believe in one God who is actually three persons at the same time of being one God. You say, well, that sounds confusion, confusing. <laughs> well, it is. There's some level of mystery in it. There's some level of of a kind of grasping, almost like a single-cell amoeba that we are trying to understand a multi-cell creature or something. You know, we just don't quite get how that works. Augustine wrote, and we quoted this last week, but I love it. Thus the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and each of these by himself is God. And at the same time, they are all one God. And each of them by himself is a complete substance. And yet they are all one substance. The Father is not the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Father, nor the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not the Father, nor the Son. 
But the Father is only Father, and the Son is only Son, and the Holy Spirit is only Spirit, only Holy Spirit. To all three belong the same eternity, the same unchangeableness, the same majesty, the same power. In the Father is unity, in the Son equality, in the Holy Spirit the harmony of unity and equality. And these three attributes are all one because the Father, because of the Father, all equal because of the Son and all harmonious because of the Spirit, end quote. Again, there's some degree your mind kind of tilts, your face kind of wrinkles. But there's something about this that's faithful that we're called to believe. God as Father, Son, and Spirit. And then it goes on in the Creed. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. How was Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit? Somehow through the creative power of the Holy Spirit, the eternal Son assumed a fully human nature that he got from his mother, the Virgin Mary, while he remained God in Mary's womb. And we know that that even though Joseph eventually takes Mary on as his wife and raised Jesus, they raised Jesus as her son, Mary was the only human parent of Jesus. And that's why she's held in such honor, uh, because she submitted to the will of God and bore the Son of God as her own son. So what is the relationship between Jesus' humanity then and his divinity? I mean, Jesus is both fully and truly God and both and also fully and truly human. The church has argued that the divine and the human natures of Jesus' person, they, they may be distinguished, in other words, we can talk about them, but they can never be separated. They can't be changed. They can't be confused. All that Jesus does as a human being, he also does as God. And before he ever became human, he was eternally living and active within the unity of the Holy Trinity. That's what we believe. A little opaque. And then it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why did he suffer? Jesus suffered for our sins so that we could have peace with God. That's what the Old Testament predicted. It says in Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We know that Jesus suffered not just only physically on the cross, but also he shared our mental and spiritual temptations and sufferings, physical temptations that are common to all people. And in his agony and desolation on the cross, he somehow stands in the place of opening the way for us to be helped and redeemed, saved. So why does the creed say then that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, <laughs> right? Why bring up Pontius Pilate? It's clear, the creed makes it clear, because Jesus' life and death is not just some eternal or cosmic idea. It was an actual event that occurred at a particular time in a particular place in Judea in the first century AD. It's real, and our faith is situated in something that actually happened. And then the creed say he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. What does Jesus mean? Or what does this mean that he was crucified? What's the import of that? Jesus was executed as a common criminal. He was associating with common humanity, even the most evil part of humanity. Somehow he links up to that so he can bring understanding to that. He was scourged. He was mocked. He was nailed to a cross. And even though it was a miscarriage of justice, somehow his execution fulfilled God's plan that Jesus would bear our sins and die a death he didn't deserve as a death we deserve so that we could be saved 
from sin and eternal condemnation and be reconciled to God. So, so why does the creed make a point of saying that Jesus died? I mean, it says he died. The creed makes the point just simply to say it was real. He actually had a bodily death, such as every one of us have a bodily death. Why does it emphasize that? Because to counter suspicions that somehow Jesus was a spiritual being or this was just an eternal idea. No, they wanted to say, no, he actually died and then celebrate that his death was followed by a resurrection, which would help our minds grasp ramifications of bodily resurrection for us because everything Jesus did opens the way for things to happen to us. And then it says that he descended to the dead. What that means is that he truly died and his spirit did not remain in his body, but he entered into the realm of death. And then it declares, on the third day, he rose again. This means that Jesus didn't simply get resuscitated, but God restored him physically from death to life. And in this resurrection, he is he receives a new body, a resurrection body that will never die again. And it's that resurrection body that we are told we will receive when we die and are risen, that when we are raised from the dead. So now, after his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days visiting and teaching the followers. He appeared with his disciples. He spoke to them. He would invite them to touch him, to see he was real, to see his scars. He ate with them. And then the creed says he ascended into heaven. Why is that important? Because Jesus, as he leaves in front of their eyes, he's going back to the Father. The, the claim was that he's there actively doing something, that he's actually interceding for the church and that he receives into heavenly life everyone that has faith in him. And even though that, that, that he's absent from us, he's actually with us by his spirit and he listens for our prayers, which is kind of cool. And as a result of this ascension, we know that the Father would send the Holy Spirit. That's what he said, I must go, and, and the Spirit will come. And through the Holy Spirit, Christians are united as Christ's body on the earth. We're united to Jesus, who's the living head. And in him and to one another, there's this beautiful way in which his ascension opened the way for us to be connected uh, to each other and to Christ as he sits at God's right hand. And when Jesus sits there ruling with his Father in heaven, he's Lord over the church, Lord over creation. He's, his authority is to equip his church to advance his kingdom and to finally establish justice and peace, peace rather, on the earth. As he sits there, the scripture claims that he intercedes as our great high priest, that he notes our needs, that he receives our prayer, and that through Jesus we're granted access to the Father. It's an audacious claim that we actually have access to God's very presence as we make our confessions, as we give our praises, as we give thanksgivings, requests to him, which means you and I can rely on Jesus being present with us as he promised. And we should look for him to help us as we seek to serve him. And then he says, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's how this section ends. Jesus promised that he'll come again. When he does, the present world order will pass away. God will usher in a fully renewed creation to stand forever. All the saints will be together with God at that time. Now, we don't know when that's going to happen. The scripture just says, Jesus said the only one that actually knows is the Father, that even though technically Jesus could come at any moment, the experience of the past 2,000 years has taught the church to live and to plan to live full lives, being open and expectant of his return anytime. 
And when it talks about his return, he says he will judge. He comes, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. We know that when Jesus comes, he will judge the wrongs and they'll be put to right. And all the people who have died will be resurrected and together with those living, who are living at the time, will be judged by Jesus. Then each person will enter the next phase of the human experience. Now this is the story that shapes our lives. This is the creed that we align our lives to. Next week, we'll talk about, I believe in the Holy Spirit.